This is Chavruta, Jewish texts and their influence on our lives. I'm Ali Viterbi. And I'm Rabbi Phil Grobart. And each month, we bring in a guest to teach us their favorite piece of Jewish text. Our guest today is Rabbi Wayne Dosick. Wayne is a spiritual guide who counsels about faith, ethical values, life transformations, and evolving human consciousness. He's the leader of the Elijah Minion and a retired visiting professor at the University of San Diego and the host of the monthly online radio program, Spirit Talk Live. He's the author of nine critically acclaimed books, including the classic Living Judaism. His most recent is Radical Loving. And he lives in La Costa, California. Rabbi Dosick. Welcome. Rabbi Grovart. My successor, successor, successor. We have a lot in common. Maybe we'll get into that. But uh, yeah, so we were both rabbis at Bethel. Uh, in San Diego in La Jolla. Also, Rabbi Dasik was a friend of my father's, even though he's much, much younger than my father, uh, but they were good friends and also had a connection to Ali's father too. So, uh, Friend of my father's as well <laughs> and rabbi of my shul. So welcome to the podcast, Rabbi Dasik. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So I wanted to start, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the Elijah Minion, what the Elijah Minion is, what kind of community, how it started. Well, the Elijah Minion, Actually, this Shabbos, at the end of the service, we are celebrating our 30th anniversary, the end of 30 years of the Elijah Minion. Uh, I, like you, did big suburban conservative congregations for many years. And with all due respect, it wasn't working for them. And I saw that at a certain point, it wasn't working for me. And so uh, these 30 years ago, my wife Ellen and I, established this uh, independent minion, sort of connected to the Jewish renewal movement, where the overriding principle is God at the center. And so it's a prayer group and a study group. We don't have a men's club or a sisterhood or a Hebrew school, although the, the people from the group have created a great community with each other. Uh, but um, it's God-centered worship which is a combination of traditional davening because the words and the music resonate deeply for us, powerful English prayer, uh, Kabbalistic meditation, and joyous uh, ecstatic chant. And then learning uh, the world of the spirit of uh, Kabbalah and uh, the Zohar and other mystical texts. So that um, the things that are missing in Jewish life and that's gonna lead me into the text that we're gonna talk about later. Um, we Jews have been very, uh, post-American, post-war American Jewry has been very, very good at creating community and doing mitzvahs, especially so, uh, so social justice. We save Soviet Jewry, we save the Ethiopian Jewry. We do good social justice acts of, of loving kindness. And yet, and we have a communal relationship with God. We have a Baruch Atadonai relationship with God. But we don't do what we're supposed to do best, which is help each person create a deep, personal, intimate, loving relationship with God. And so that's what the Minion has attempted to do over these years, to be a place where people can um, feel safe and comfortable connecting with and then communicating each in his or her own way with God. I'm curious what exactly you mean by that. What is a communal relationship with God in contrast to an individual relationship? Well, walk around your 
again, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but walk Please, around the traditional uh, suburban uh, conservative or reform congregations and ask people if they have a personal relationship with God. And the answer most likely is no. The answer most likely is I come to Shul to talk to God, but it's not easy talking to God in kind of an intimate conversation when we're all sitting forward uh, in our nice clothes and listening, listening to the rabbi uh, tell us what page to turn to and read responsively. So the communal relationship means that we are very good at knowing the brachas and knowing how to come to the Torah and say the bracha and, uh, and, and passing the Torah from generation to generation. Um, but most synagogues, let's face it, uh, also concentrate on the fundraising and book reviews for the sisterhood and carpools for Hebrew school. And um, we don't spend our time helping people in that individual deep relationship with the divine. Where does this come from? Who, who are some of your teachers? Who inspired you to pursue this? Uh, well, my Rebbe in rabbinical school was Jacob Petakowski, Alva Shalom. And um, this is the learning from uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and Eli Wiesel and Rabbi Zalman Shechter Shalomi and Shlomo Karlbach. Those are my Rebbe's. Yeah, big group. Talk to me a little bit about, I mean, you're also a writer and uh, how do you integrate? I'm also a writer. I've written books. Um, one of the challenges, I I, as you know, I love your you. books. I love your writings. I've had you on my radio program a number of times to talk about your books. You are uh, you are an e extremely fine writer. And I just had the uh, the uh, the pleasure of writing a blurb for your upcoming new book. Yeah, I just saw it. Thank you for that. Um, so, writing as a rabbi, as a working rabbi involved in a community, seems to me like that's a big challenge. How do you integrate? You know your work as a communal leader, with uh, with with just your aspiration to write. Your well, part of, it, part of it is that that um, the Elijah Minion is not a full time job; it's a part time. Uh, we have services every other Shabbos and classes once a week, and so, and I don't have a Hebrew school to oversee. Um, so that was part of it. Part of it also was I, was I was teaching at the University of San Diego, the only course in Jewish studies at the Catholic University, which was one of the great gigs of my life. And um, so I was in a, an academic intellectual setting there to balance the world of scholarship and the world of sacred spirit. And um, so I decided that, that uh, part of my career would be writing and then going around from place to place before COVID to, uh, to speak and to teach, do scholar and residence weekends, do uh, um, lengthy, uh, lengthy stays as a rabbi in residence or a rabbi in residence. And that was the balance. So the, sacri the sacrifice was that I didn't make as big a living as I used to make in suburban congregations. There's not as much in my pension fund as there were, would have been otherwise. Um, and yet uh, it's been a very, very uh, satisfying career. This, this year is the 49th anniversary of my ordination. Wow. So I just had on my radio program yesterday Rabbi Sally Priestand, who was the first American woman rabbi, she was a year ahead of me in school. And uh, so she's celebrating the 50th anniversary of, of her rabbinate wow. and all the women who followed her into the rabbinate. And next year will be the 50th anniversary of my ordination. Mazel tov. Thank you. I just had the 35th year. 
wow. anniversary of my mine. So uh, I remember goes, goes by quickly, doesn't it? I remember meeting you when you were a young, young rabbi at uh, Park Avenue Synagogue in uh, in yeah. New York when I came to visit my good friend, uh, Rabbi David Lincoln. That's right. That's right. All right. So you have a text for us? I do. Um, so we have to understand that at this point in the Torah, uh, as the uh, sages say, there is no chronological order in Torah. And so the, the, the events seem to be well out of place, and they probably are as they're recorded in this text. But Moshe Rabbeinu has been uh, up the mountain, received the tablets of the law, and comes down and finds the golden calf and the people dancing around the golden calf who obviously have lost faith and God is ready to destroy the people. And Moses bargains with God a little bit and he says, you know, God, if, if you uh, if you destroy the people, then basically my what are the other nations going to say they'll say that god isn't powerful uh and uh, you don't want that so moses appeals to god's vanity and says um you have to keep them you have to keep them so god says to moses all right i'll tell you what come up the mountain again and we'll talk again and in my mercy I'll give you a second set of the tablets so that you can bring down. So I can just imagine the conversation when, when Moshe gets there. He says, hey, God, hey, boss. You know, this, is, this has really been hard on me. I didn't want this job to begin with. You, uh, you called me out of the burning bush in the desert, and I told you, no, no, no. And you made up all kinds of reasons why I had to go to Pharaoh, and you sent my brother Aaron with me. And I, I have to tell you, I haven't liked this job that much. And uh, even when, when Pharaoh let us go, I brought the people, we came to the sea, and you gave us miracles, you got us across the sea, but some of the people complained that there was mud between their toes. Ungrateful. And throughout the desert, all they have been doing is complaining. You shouldn't have brought us out of the desert. You shouldn't have brought us out of out of uh, slavery, out of Egypt. Uh, we don't, we've got nothing to eat except this manna that tastes like cardboard that comes down from the from the heavens. And uh, we remember the leeks and the onions and the watermelons uh, of Egypt, which tells us, by the way, interestingly enough, what slaves were eating in those days. And um, and now. You, you you call me up the mountain to bring down these these uh, injunctions for living life between these people, the highest of human values, and I come down the mountain and they've lost faith already. So I'll tell you what, God, let's make a deal. If you want me to continue working for you, I've got to meet you, as we might say, man to man or man to God, face to face, panim el panim. And God says, no one can meet me face to face and live. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, show me your glory. 
And God says, I can't. I can't. If you want to live, I can't show you my face. So God has an idea. And if you ask the average Hebrew school graduate what God said at that this, this next moment, the, the graduate might say, God said, go stand in that rock over there. Go stand in the cliff to the rock over there, the cleft of the rock. It's not what the text says. God says, first of all, God says, Here is your place with me. And as we were talking about before, we use chant, a great deal of chant, to bring us to the highest ideals of learning and of spiritual relationship. So, because chant is unconscious, chant goes deep, deep within us. And uh, it, it bubbles up when we need it. So I took an old melody to these words and I used them to these words. Um, which and it goes like this: He name a com He name a com He name a com He name a com Here is your place with me. Behold your place with me. Here is your place with me. Behold your place with me. Often in our Shabbos morning services, we sing that chant. Because we say to God in the beginning, Baruch Shemar, praise to you who spoke and the world came to be. We say, thank you, God, praise you, God, for all these things that you give us. And, you know, it always occurred to me that God never responds right at that moment. So we sing, God says, thank you for your praise. Here, come on, sit with me. Let's talk. And you know, no matter how often I would say that from the pulpit in words, people didn't necessarily get it. Now that we chant it, because it goes deep within, people get it. There's a place for me with God. So then God says, okay, and here's the here's the major text. Visamticha Benikratatsur. I will place you, not go stand over there, but I will place you in the cleft, in the cleavage of the rock. And of course we know that Tzur, rock, is another name for God. Tzur Yisrael, rock of ages, Ma'ot Tzur. So what God is saying in essence here is, Moshe Rabbeinu, you can't see me face to face, but I'm going to put you in the most intimate place in me. I am going to put you in the most intimate place in me, in the cleavage of God. And then we can know each other from the depths of each other's being we can know each other from the inside of the insides, from the kishkas. And Rabbi Shlomo Karbach always used to remind us that the word panim, in another form, is bifnim, inside. And so, what Moshe Rabbeinu, what God is saying to Moshe Rabbeinu is, we can know each other from the inside of the insides, 
as the most intimate relationship that I can have with any human being who still lives. And so we took these words also and took it to another, I borrow, I take words and then I borrow melodies. Um, I wrote only one nigga in my entire life and that came down to me, but the others that we sing. So it is Panim El Panim 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 which we often sing uh, at various times in the service but often before the Amida because we are going into that a connection and conversation with God and we want to do that from the most intimate place from the inside of the incense. So that is my text. Well, um, you know, we're we're nodding our heads now and <laughs> just trying to come up with something that uh, can match the profundity of that. Thank you for that, Yashkoch. Thank you, Baruch Thea. There's one idea I had just, um, well, I have a bunch of ideas, but another name for God is Makom, right? Right. So uh, God says he named Makom. Makom, right. right. Mm. Makom, which is that. None of these names we, we have to superimpose because Hamakom and even Sur, Sur doesn't come uh, until... Uh, later in the Bible, and Hamakom, of course, is rabbinic. So we have to superimpose from a, 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 a long, faraway place. But nevertheless, it does work. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even superimposing, what it tells us now, I guess, with our rabbinic theology, is that you don't have to be at Sinai. Like this takes place on Sinai. So right. you might think hey, you, you got to be in this place that's just naturally close to God, like Sinai. But he named Makomiti means that the Makom is with you all the time. So right. it's not Sinai, it's here in my office, you know, you in your office, it's me in school, on the streets, in the gutter, you know, Makomiti. Right. And uh, you want to be in the, uh, you want God to hold you in the tzor, it doesn't matter where you are, there's still the Makom, the Makom is with you. Right, and um, yeah, exactly. And um, God, first of all, Sinai is ever present. Right. And God is ever present. And that's, again, one of the lessons from God-centered worship and from the intimate relationship with God. And that is to say to people that God is everywhere. God is everything. Uh, and it occurred to me one day, you know, there are, there are seven brachas that we have for, um, you know, for wine and for, for, for uh, bread and for uh, vegetables and for uh, tree fruits. And then there's the catch-all, which is Shakolni uh, Yebidvaro. Anything that doesn't fit into into uh, any of the other categories is we say Shahakol. Well, Shahakol is not just for whiskey or for something that doesn't uh, fit into any other category, but it is everything. Everything, everything is God. So God is everywhere and everything, and God is both masculine and feminine, and good and evil, and right and wrong, and here and there, and light and shadow. Um, your neshama is God. God is within you. God is within this table. Uh, scientists call it faster and slower moving molecules. We call it God. 
because God is in everything and everywhere. And so what I try to teach is that you just have to be aware. It's what we call oneness consciousness. And that's what I wrote about in Radical Loving. One God, one world, one people. So you have to be aware that the, 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 that um, you're created in the image of God. And not the physical image, of course, but the spiritual image. And so if you look into the mirror, you see the face of God. And if I look into your face, Rabbi Grobart, Ali, if I look into your face, I see the face of God. And I forget that too often when I'm in the convenience store and the teenage clerk can't make change for a dollar bill without using a computer. Or somebody else cuts me off in traffic. Or I'm standing in a long line at the bank. But in those faces are the face of God. God is everywhere and I just have to be aware, consciously aware of God. You know, the tradition says, I think it, was, it might have been Rabbi Nachman, who said, say 100 brochas a day. 100 brochas a day. How can you say 100 brochas a day? But the point is that if you say a bracha now and you know you're going to say a bracha five minutes from now, you can't leave God energy. You just have to be in God energy. I can't cheat you in business in those five minutes. Mm. And so um, that's that's what we teach. So I, I put that to um, an old an old melody, which so many people know, but it goes, Shekol niye bidvaro, Shekol niye bidvaro, Shekol niye bidvaro, everything by God's word, everyone by God's word, all is by the word of God. So sing that to yourself once in a while. It'll bubble up when you need it, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, and you have mm. to realize that's the face of God. What's so beautiful, I'm connecting this text that you've selected to the previous conversation about our individual relationship with God versus a communal relationship with God. And right. clearly we're seeing here a bit of a genesis of Moses's, I mean, he's already had a relationship with God, but really getting deeper inside of that into the depths um, or the insides. And I'm curious, is Maybe I'm asking this from a question of my own spiritual questioning, but like, how do we create through chant? Is that how you're kind of positing that we can go into those depths? Because chanting to me has always been more of a communal experience, right? Is Are these chants you sing alone in your home? Or are they ones you sing in community? And how does that relate to getting inside of, of God? Chance is one way. There are myriad ways. Study is one. You encounter God in the text. Um, meditation, prayer, uh, yoga, dance. Uh, there are all kinds of there are all kinds of ways in. My way in happens to be chant. And actually, Ellen and I wrote a book uh, a number of years ago called Twenty Minute Kabbalah, which is uh, seeing the spherot, not linear, but uh, in a spiral. And there's a, the daily prayer, spiritual practice is a chant for each one of those spherot. Now that's the way that we come in. We come in through music. Um, I like chant because, uh, it, as I say, it's not only what I do consciously now, but it can bubble up anytime I need it. The right chant will bubble up just at the moment that, that I need it, the right words. Um, but there are all kinds of ways, there are all kinds of ways in. Uh, into a relationship with God. 
It may be the sounds of silence. It may be going out to, um, as Rabbi Nachman said, I have to go out uh, every day uh, to be out in nature in order to find God. Um, it could be in, in uh, see, the, the, the issue is, the issue, and, and for most American Jews, I think this is a crucial issue, the prayer has two parts. We know part one well. We talk to God. But the second part is that God talks to us. And we have to listen. And so listening, Shema Yisrael, listen up, Jews, you who wrestle with God. Listen up, because God wants to talk to you. Which is nevuah, which is prophecy. And, you know, the, the sages cut off prophecy 2,000 years ago because they wanted to... Um, to put all the political power to themselves, they didn't want they didn't want prophets off in the in the hinterlands in the neighborhood saying, "I'm hearing from God, I'm hearing from God." I'm hearing. no. They wanted to consolidate political power uh, and and uh, uh, t- to tell us that uh, revelation, continuing revelation, comes only through them. That's the great Pardes story. Remember the Pardes story? Four go into the paradise. Pardes. And the light of God is so great that uh, one uh, dies, one goes mad, one becomes an apostate, and only one comes out to hold, and that's Rabbi Kiba. And what the sages are saying is, unless you are as wise as Rabbi Akiva, and none of you is, don't mess with coming into God's presence. But it's a different world. And I write about this in my book, Soul Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism, which is which has um, been our way into God and into religion for the last two thousand years, is fading away. Biblical Judaism had two thousand years, and it faded into Rabbinical Judaism. It took two, three, four hundred years, but the, the the change was in the Mishnaic period, two hundred before the Common Era, two hundred of the Common Era, and we're at that same point. We are moving out of rabbinic Judaism into Judaism's third era. And since nobody named it, I got to name it. I call it Neshama Judaism, Soul Judaism, which will be characterized by each person's individual relationship with God. There will still be community because there's so much that is um, important in community, uh, energy and power and responsibility and friendship and love. But it's not enough anymore. It's not enough anymore. Rabbinic Judaism was when people wrapped in talus and fillin every day and went to shul. That doesn't happen anymore, at least in, in, the, in the liberal Jewish world. And so um, we're coming to that third era, era, which is characterized by our individual relationships with God. And so um, going back to what we talked about before, you read from the same prayer book, you read the same words, you read responsively, you say Kimitzion at the same moment or Shochanat at the same moment. And, um, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you give your energy to the person sitting next to you and vice versa. But where is that personal communication? I advocate pillow talk with God. Just as you have pillow talk, that intimate, loving pillow talk with your spouse, and with no one else. You can have that intimate pillow talk with God as long as you talk to God and assume that God's listening, which God is, and 
when you listen when God talks to you? All right. So here's a uh, here's a question. I'll, I'll actually before I come to the question, I am um, recently finished teaching a course called Jewish Spiritual Practices for high school students at mm-hmm. the San Diego Jewish Academy, and they, they sponsor this this podcast. And um, and hopefully some of the students will listen to this podcast. But um, so what we went through was just a bunch of individual spiritual practices. And I told them that th- these are practices that get you into close dialogue. I didn't use the word panima panim. That would have been great. But just, uh, you know, get you closer to God. Right. Deepen your relationship with God. The last thing I did, I'm just kind of thinking about this. The last thing I did was nigunim. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, you know, how do you teach about nigunim? All, all you can do is you just sing the nigunim. I mean, I played guitar and we did nigunim. And uh, and I thought, like, of all the things I've done in this class, and I did some interesting things, in, in, in addition to Torah study and visiting the sick, I mean, things that are common in rabbinic Judaism. But we also did meditation. We also did some yoga. But we did nigunim, and I thought this is going to fail because they can't be still for more than, never mind 30 seconds, I mean, three seconds. And, and uh, in an era of phones, even if I tell them to put their phones away, their computers away, um, I have to tell you, I, I think the nigunim was the most powerful part of the course. I, I think it caught them more than anything else. And, uh, you know, I could see them closing their eyes and tears coming to them. And yeah. I didn't even do as well as you did just now in setting the whole thing up. I just said, like, here's a melody. And think of the melody as, as getting you close to God. And that was enough. We talked a little bit about Shema. So, um, so I mean, you're making me think about the power of nigunim and just how you incorporate that into this new Judaism. Here, here's a quick question. It's a textual question, but maybe you can expand on it to, um, to kind of describe what you're after. So the text that you gave us, God says, no one can see my panim. Like no one, no one I, you can't see my, my panai, you know, no one can see it. And so he shows them, you know, I'm in the, you're in my cleavage. I, you know, I love that. You're, you know, you're in my breast. You're going to feel what it's like to be inside of me, but you can't see my face. But the very last thing the Torah tells us in Devarim and Deuteronomy about Moses is that he saw God face to face. So um, maybe talk about that contradiction. Uh, I have some ideas about it, but um, why is it that one area, it says very clearly, God says, you can't see my face. But in the end, the Torah characterizes Moses as seeing God face to face. Well, it is a contradiction. No question about it. And yet it comes at the very, very end. And so as Moshe Rabbeinu is about to die, it seems to me that we're not talking about going backward, that Moses saw God face to face at any previous time, but at the moment of death, and Midrash, of course, says that God took Moses with a kiss, right? right. At the moment of death, God could see, God could see uh, Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu could see God. Yeah, so it's a it's a story about spiritual growth, even from the most spiritual person of all time. Like the the greatest spiritual genius, still had spiritual growth. I mean, still had uh, you know more space to climb up the ladder. Right, right. So um, let me tell you about an, an idea that I've taught for many, many, many years, and that is to take um, rituals that we know already and reinterpret them in a spiritual way or maybe go back to the original spirituality that got lost in rote and ritual. So for example, we light Shabbos candles, right? 30 seconds a week. And um, the candle lighter covers usually her face. And we all know that that's because, that's because of a uh, legal fiction that you can't say the bracha before, you can't light the candle. You know, you, you can't make Shabbos when candles are already lit. But what I tell people is that candle gazing is not 
just for the Buddhists alone. So if you take those 30 seconds and add 30 more, a minute a week, and gaze into the Shabbos candles, because after all, what is Shabbos? Zecher l'masei It is the remembrance of the act of, the moment of creation. And so if you stare into the candles long enough, you may be able, not this week, next week, the year after, or you do it once and it doesn't happen again for six more weeks, but every once in a while, you may be able to get in touch with that primordial moment of creation. And if you get in touch with the primordial moment of creation, you can be in touch with the primordial creator that is God. So just by lighting Shabbos candles and reinterpreting the meaning or adding on to the meaning, it becomes a great spiritual practice. That's beautiful. I want to try that tomorrow night. <laughs> can I ask a, maybe, maybe this is heretical, but I have a question about this text, um, which is, well, first of all, when, when you say that Moses sees God's face at the end of Devarim, I mean, that's like the most narratively satisfying ending, right? To a Torah, to the Torah. It's like this beautiful growth. Um, but it makes me wonder why God says, you can't see my face, but I'll put you in the most intimate place. It, how is that satisfying to Moses if he's asking for something from God that he needs for his faith in order to lead his people? And God says, says no, that just, I don't know. Maybe this is a modern question, but I, but it makes me curious why that is more satisfying, perhaps, or, or satisfying enough for Moses to get the strength to continue to lead the people of Israel. Well, you know, the, the whole narrative, the whole Torah gets cut off. If Rabbi Grobart or I um, submitted this story to our editors, they would say, go back and write the conclusion, right? The entire Torah is to get us to Eretz Israel, and the Torah stops before we get there. We have to go to the next book. We have to go to Joshua in order to get in. Sometimes sequels pay. I don't know. But, I don't know. I disagree. I find it the kind of narrative that I love, like the endings to narratives where I love, where there's promise and there's hope and okay. also disappointment. But that's, that's my take. That, that's where you read text differently. It's wonderful. <laughs> but here, I think, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the best that, that Moses could hope for at that given moment. And I wrote another book called The Real Name of God because we have hundreds of names for God and the outside world has hundreds more. And my conclusion after years and years of uh, scholarly research is that the name for God is Anochi. Now, Rabbi Grover, you've read this book and you-, you know Wonderful it. book, it's a wonderful book. Great Thank contribution. You. Thank you. Anochi is the, the wholeness of God. Every other name that we have for God is an attribute or a, um, manifestation or a behavior or an aspect of God. So if you picture a beach ball, each one of the colored panels is one of the aspects or attributes of God. My question was, what's the name of the whole beach ball? And um, so with, with all this research I did um, and the sacred spirit that was sort of given, me, given to me in a download, if you will, um, my conclusion was Anochi. So 
in the in the part where Moses and God are at the burning bush in the part of the Torah, um, Moses says to God, "Who shall I say sent me?" And he's not talking about who should, he should speak to Pharaoh. He, he should to Bnei Yisrael. Who should I say sent me? And God says, "Tell them, Eya Asher Eya, I am that I am. I was, I am, I will be." But if you go back to the beginning of that, those paragraphs, the very first word in those paragraphs is Anochi. God is speaking to Moshe Rabbeinu out of Anochi, out of the fullness, the completeness, the totality of the whole God. So Moses says, so why shouldn't I tell the people that? That's your name? And God says, listen, they've been slaves a very, very long time, 400 years. They don't know who I am. All they have is tales of 400 years ago from their great, 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 great grandparents about who God is, about who I am. So they're unsophisticated. They're certainly theologically unsophisticated. They don't know me. Let's break it to them gently. Tell them I am that I am. And eventually, when they are more spiritually sophisticated, I'll tell them my old name. And God fulfills that by starting the Ten Commandments with the word Anochi. So sometimes it is the growth of the individual, and sometimes it's the growth of the relationship between God and the individual or God and the whole people. It's interesting when you chose that text, you know, you let us know a couple of days ahead of time and you chose the text and I, you know, I went to look at it and uh, I, I kind of, yeah, I, I guess I knew that's where you, you were going to take us. And um, first of all, you know, it's not an easy text in the sense Ali and I were talking about this before. And it's not clear who's talking sometimes. You have to look at it really closely to see, oh, it's God talking to Moses. And here's Moses. Here's God talking. They're almost fused, which is also interesting. I, I also want to tell you that um, it's, a, it's a set of verses that often makes me cry. Mm. And um, I'm not sure why, but there's this um, amazing scene where, God says, I have to cover your eyes because, you know, you still, you, you can't see my face. So he says, you know, you'll be in, and the way you describe it is so beautiful. You'll be in my breasts and the cleavage of my breasts, but there's still something you can't see. So I will take the responsibility. I'll cover your eyes. And he covers his eyes. And then afterwards he uncovers his eyes. And I just think it's, it's a moment of intimacy that is so powerful. It's almost hard to take. Mm -hmm. And, but I felt like there's been times in my life where that's exactly what I needed. I, I, I couldn't get that kind of hug you know, that kind of intimacy from anybody, but I could get it from God. Right. And then I think of uh, people that are vulnerable and the sense of contingency and, and fragility that we all feel, especially these last COVID years, how much we all need to be feel like that we're being hugged in God's bosom. And if, if someone needs to cover my eyes, God will cover my eyes for me. And um, that's why it's, it's hard for me to get through the passage without breaking down and crying because, uh, you know, it's kind of the hug that we all need, yes. and, but, but it's hard to get. It's hard to get. And, the, um, the, the prevailing word for me is visamticha. I yeah. will put you. Covering eyes, I will put you. That's the great intimacy of this. And it's one of the reasons that it's uh, so important to me. It is that relationship between God and us and me. It's uh, not only the communal relationship of me being part of the Jewish people, but it's between God and Wayne. And um, God and Phil and God and Allie.
And those times we not mates there from out of the depths, we call, and I love the word that comes with it, in the divine expansiveness, right? That's the, that's the root of the word, Rachav yeah, is yeah. actually the street. <laughs> divine expansiveness where no matter how things are difficult, no matter how much we are in pain, no matter how much our sorrow or anguish, God is big enough and expands enough to take us in and to lift us up. That's the gorgeousness of being in personal relationship with God. I had a call just this morning from a very, very dear friend in Israel who's going through great uh, cancer uh, treatment. And she said to me, it's been a year, it's been a year and I'm still alive for which I'm very grateful, but I just can't take it anymore. I just can't take it anymore. And uh, she's a Hebrew speaker. So I said to her, mm. right? and um, that's the beauty of being in personal relationship with God. And you write about that so beautifully in your upcoming book, your essay uh, from the narrow place that was in the CCR journal and uh, in your upcoming book, it's really, yeah, notes from the narrow place. So we're all we've all been in that narrow place now for for too long. Right, right. Both both communally right. and and personally. Sure. And sometimes the narrow place stays with us forever. The memory of the narrow place stays with us forever. And I, I have to tell you, you know, particularly people of my age, and I'm probably 25 years older, 20, 25 years older than you, and a whole lot older than you, Ellie, because I knew your daddy when he was 15. Um, those those years are gone for us and we'll never get back that time um where ellen and i are going to israel in a couple of weeks and we haven't been now in four years we usually go at least every other year that trip to israel that i missed two years ago no matter what we do this time or next time or the time after i'll never get back that time um so sometimes the memory of the narrow place is incredibly painful and sometimes the memory of the narrow place is a blessing because we remember how we got out of the narrow place yeah, yeah. that's just beautiful thank you yeah thank you for your teaching today thank yeah, you. rabbi dasik yeah thank you um it's really beautiful you got us both this thinking but also um pondering <laughs> which is what, what we like to do best so thanks very much Chavruta, Jewish Texts and Their Influence on Our Lives is brought to you by the San Diego Jewish Academy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, where you can also rate, review us, and subscribe. Our music is composed by former podcast guest Gail Strom. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.